Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Al Franken Show, NPR, On the Media, The Young Turks, Ring of Fire, The BBC, and Tom Hartman. joins us again. He's the author of a terrific book, uh, Chasing Ghosts, A Soldier's Fight for America from Baghdad to Washington. He's also the executive director and founder of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Uh, uh, Paul, uh, a, fr- a, friend, a mutual friend of ours, Andrew Barreen, wrote about uh, this this story uh, of Jonathan is it Schultz or Schultze. I think it's Schultze, yeah. Yeah, uh, from Minnesota who uh, committed suicide yeah. um, this past week. And uh, he, as far as we know, at least from what his parents say, he had uh, sought help and uh, actually gone to a VA facility in St. Cloud and uh, said he was suicidal and uh, was turned away and then told that he was like 26th in line for a bed or something like that. Right. And, uh, you know, I... I, I these VA hospitals are under-resourced and do great jobs, I think, considering the resources. And I don't want to, you know, we don't know the, the whole story necessarily. It sounds like a horrible mistake was made because isn't the policy to take someone who says to give them a bed if they say they're suicidal? Right. The, the, the policy is supposed to be that if you demonstrate any kind of suicidal tendencies, that, that you're admitted immediately. Um, but there's a, a little bit of a, of a, of a uh, difference of opinion here about whether or not he made that clear to the folks on staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, his parents allegedly uh, escorted him to the VA hospital that day. His father's a Vietnam vet, and, and Schultz is a guy who, who uh, spent time in Iraq in Ramadi, I think, as a Marine. Uh, he's got a baby, uh, and, and he was going through some real problems uh, that I think are not unusual for returning vets. And he didn't get the care he needs, and he needed. And unfortunately, he, he took his own life. And and I think there's a bigger story beyond uh, his. And I think if we can find some some use for this uh, sad story, it's in bringing uh, to light the fact that this is not unusual. I mean, we've got really uh, a stressed VA nationwide. You've got over 1.6 million veterans who've been through Iraq and Afghanistan. 35% of veterans coming home have already sought mental health services, uh, and about 20% report a mental health problem. Uh, and we've also got a number of suicides in theater. 96 people have taken their own life in Iraq, and 50 in Afghanistan. So this is a problem. It's, it's going to continue to be a problem, a growing problem, and the VA and, and the government in general need to get ahead of the curve. And, and what is, is this a, a result of post-traumatic stress disorder, or is that a, uh, you know, or don't we, we don't, is it unnecessary to characterize it, and, and, and what is the incidence of that, and, and, and what are we doing, and are people screened when they get back, and uh, is there mandatory screening? Well, Jonathan is kind of considered almost, unfortunately, a textbook case. He had seen a doctor uh, when he was home on leave uh, in October 2004. Uh, he was reliving combat in his sleep. He had flashbacks. Uh, he had a hard time eating. He felt paranoid. He was struggling with relationships and was having alcohol problems. Uh, he was prescribed medication to try to calm him down and, and help him sleep. Uh, and, and I think that that, that, that shows you he's asked for help. He, he went and got treatment. But where the real breakdown is, the follow-up. 
Uh, the VA is overwhelmed, especially in rural areas. They're trying to deal with this case, uh, these cases, and, and they just don't have the resources. The VA is underfunded nationally by about $3 billion. Uh, they haven't spent a lot of the money that's already been allocated to them, and, and we need to get to the bottom of this. Secretary Nicholson, the head of the VA, needs to testify before Congress and start answering some tough questions. Uh, we, we've started a petition online at IAVA.org. If folks go there, they can sign the petition. They can see Andy's piece in the Tribune today, find out more about this and any other mental health issues. But this is going to be a long fight, uh, or we're going to see a lot more people, unfortunately, like Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, and Andy tied it to this uh, this bill that uh, Jim Ramstad, uh, Congressman uh, from here in Minnesota, Republican, who has with Patrick Kennedy for parity for mental health, and also with uh, Pete Domenici and uh, Paul Wellstone had originally co-sponsored with Pete Domenici in, in the Senate. Uh, and and this would cover things like uh, in, in including treatment for uh, for a substance and stuff. Uh, but uh, I, I want to really talk to you about the the, the veterans, uh, uh, the, the effect on veterans, because a lot of our politicians say they support the troops and also criticize people who have concerns about the war as not supporting our troops. But then it seems like these same politicians don't support the troops when they come back. Yeah, I think that that's unfortunately the case. Uh, a lot of politicians love to use the troops for a photo op, uh, and you see them loving to stand up in front of a, a wall of people in camouflage. Um, but, you know, let's focus on the president. In the State of the Union uh, a few weeks ago, he didn't address veterans' issues at all. He never even mentioned the word veterans. He talked extensively about how he's going to send more troops into combat, but he didn't address at all how he's going to take care of them when they come home. Uh, so we've got an underfunded VA, we've got an outdated GI Bill, uh, and, and we've got people who need care, and we need uh, leadership in Washington. Jim Webb, uh, the new senator from Virginia and himself a Vietnam vet, is showing some of that leadership. He's going to introduce a new GI Bill, uh, and there are others. But we need the president, we need all parties to get together and make this a priority because it can't go uh, in the bottom of the bill. It can't go in a low-ranking low, uh, priority. It's got to be at the top of our list, and it's not just a veterans issue. It's also going to become a force readiness issue. Our folks are going back for a second and third time, so when you come home, it's not like you're done. You may go back, and, and we need those folks to be healthy when they do. Right. Um, you guys put out a legislative agenda every year, right? Yep, that's right. We're, we're really trying to you know, put some points on the board in Washington and get these folks to, to listen and to address these issues, um, and that's also on our site at IAVA.org, but we're calling for a few uh, things that we think are reasonable, about 30 recommendations in the areas of health care, homecoming, mental health, and accountability, stuff like a new GI Bill, mandatory confidential counseling uh, within 90 days, and then repeated follow-ups. We're also talking about issues like tax credits for employers, uh, reliable and timely funding of the VA health care, and a Truman Commission, uh, a new Truman Commission to investigate all this corruption and waste in the Department of Defense having to do with contractors and has resulted in you know equipment shortages and, and really a lack of getting our people what they need. So there's a whole list of items that we're going to push hard in Washington. We're going to use the media. We're going to use our grassroots membership nationwide and, and really try to push the veterans' agenda and get some stuff done with this new Congress. Now, uh, how... How prevalent is this? What are some numbers on? So, I mean, you said the 35 percent uh, of, of returning vets from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, get some kind of mental health service, and uh, about 20 percent have uh, have seen. Uh, tell, tell me those again. Yeah, 35 percent of the Iraq veterans have already sought mental health services mm -hmm. at the VA. 
since they've come home. And, and that number increases over time because a lot of people come home and really feel like they're okay. You go through this honeymoon period of the first few months. I remember when I came home, I felt great for the first couple of weeks. I was just happy to have air conditioning and cold beer in my family. Mm-hmm. But over time, you have a hard time readjusting. So we think that 35% number will climb over time. Uh, and, and about 20% are, are reporting a mental health problem, PTSD or severe depression. Uh, and overall, the Army's numbers say about one in three people coming home are going to have mental health issues or post-traumatic stress disorder. And this stuff can be treated, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, PTSD is a, is a psychological condition that takes place after a traumatic or life-threatening event. Um, and the, the VA really did learn after Vietnam. They rolled out these things called vet centers where vets can go in. Uh, they're associated with the VA and have peer-to-peer counseling, talk to a mentor, maybe a Vietnam vet, somebody who's been through it. Guys like Senator Max Cleveland, when he was the head of the VA, pushed hard to, to get mental health services available. Now we just need to expand it. We need to make it more uh, reactive. We need to also make it more proactive so it reaches out to people uh, over time and keeps them hooked into the system so they can get the care they need. There are lots of ways to communicate with the show and I encourage you to do so. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, send emails direct to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. The general responsible for Walter Reed Army Medical Center has been relieved of his command. Major General George Waitman is the first high-ranking officer to be held accountable for the poor conditions at an apartment building where some Walter Reed outpatients live. In a statement today, the Army said that the leaders had, quote, lost trust and confidence in the commander's leadership abilities. NPR's Guy Ross is at the Pentagon, and he joins us now. Guy, it has been two weeks since the Washington Post first reported about these problems at Walter Reed, but this is the first big change to the leadership, yes? It is. That's right. Several low-ranking officers have been relieved of their duties, but this is really the first time that the Army has held a high-ranking official responsible. Uh, And in fact, General George Waitman was actually brought out by hospital officials and by the Army to deal with media inquiries when the story first broke two weeks ago. But then, strangely enough, he sort of disappeared from the scene. He was sort of shunted to the sidelines, and there were murmurings around the Pentagon that that he would be uh, fired very soon. Remind us, Guy, about the problems at this apartment building for Walter Reed outpatients. Well, Michelle, you know, it's strange because the apartment building on its own merits was scandalous. You had mold in some of the rooms and you had uh, mouse traps and mouse droppings. But I think what really came out of the series of stories that, that was the real scandal was this mountain of paperwork that these disabled vets have to fill out, paperwork that is so unwieldy that many of these wounded Iraq vets simply go without outpatient treatment for weeks at a time. Uh, you know, the paperwork just to get a doctor's appointment. Uh, and it was taking a toll on a lot of these soldiers who are essentially recovering from traumatic injuries. And then, of course, in some cases, you have troops who are dealing with severe tr- uh, psychological trauma. Uh, so some of these uh, troops at Walter Reed, aside from living in substandard condition, 
conditions. We're also dealing with this incredible uh, red tape uh, just to get the kind of treatment that uh, they assume that they would get without any problems. Mm-hmm. Now, over the past two weeks, Pentagon officials have expressed a certain degree of surprise about what was going on, but there are reports today that senior officials did hear about some of these complaints as early as 2003. Is it clear what happened to those complaints? Well, and this is when it begins to seem as if the Army is being somewhat disingenuous about its surprise at the original allegations because former Army officials are now saying that, in fact, similar allegations were raised publicly uh, back in 2003. And, in fact, uh, an online magazine, Salon.com, ran a series on this back in 2004. Uh, So, you know, in fact, there's a case to be made that the Army's surprise uh, is somewhat disingenuous. And, in fact, the general who's been appointed to relieve or to replace, rather, uh, George Waitman as the temporary commander of Walter Reed. His name is uh, Lieutenant General Kevin Kiley. He was actually in charge of Walter Reed back in 2004 when some of these complaints first surfaced. Uh, And even last week, Kiley uh, was criticizing the Washington Post articles for being what he called one-sided. Guy, I just want to quickly ask you about the soldiers who spoke out about this. What's happened to them? Are they still at Walter Reed? They are. They are all still at Walter Reed. Uh, They're living uh, in new rooms. Most of them have been moved. Officially, the Army says there won't be any retribution, but we do now know that the Army's asked all soldiers at Walter Reed not to speak to the media without prior authorization. Thank you, Guy. Thank you. That was NPR's Guy Raz at the Pentagon. How many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Isn't how many years can a mountain exist? There, there was one uh, one thing we talked about before the election, uh, and it was uh, something that amazed me, which was on a, a I guess a defense appropriations uh, bill that the Republican House had voted to cut in half funding for traumatic brain injury uh, for for uh, research into traumatic brain injury inside the VA. And this, and from and from 14 million to 7 million, which is what I don't know, a few minutes of the war, right? Right. And this is the it's a signature wound of this war because, uh, as we've said many times here, is that uh, the, the injuries are concussive and not ballistic mainly, and there's just a tremendous amount of brain injury, and and they they cut this, and where is that now? Well, what happened was they they voted to table it, so they basically pushed it off till the end of the last Congress. Uh, which kind of passes the buck over to this Congress. And they're going to start to deal with the new budget and the new Congress, uh, I think, starting next week. And that will be really the focus in D.C. for the next couple of weeks is going through the new budget. So essentially the last Congress kind of passed the buck. Uh, they didn't deal with it adequately. And in the meantime, uh, the traumatic brain injury centers and polytrauma centers uh, don't have the funding they need, and they don't know what their funding is going to be. I think it's likely, highly likely that the new Congress will pass it. Um, but, it but it's one example of 
how the last Congress really didn't deal with the people's issues, didn't deal with the veterans' issues. And, and you're right, it was just a few million dollars. And anybody who saw the news today saw that there was an audit that found that millions in Iraqi uh, reconstruction aid was wasted. There's $36 million for armored vehicles and, and gear that they can't find. Well, that could have fully funded traumatic brain injury research for probably two years. So, right. you know, just the money that we've wasted and lost alone in Iraq could really put to, be put to good use for our veterans. And, and the range of brain injury, uh, I saw, oh, I, I, I wish I remembered the name of this. Uh, we'll, we'll get that. The, the, uh, we talked to the director. Uh, of, uh, I saw a, um, a documentary on the soldier who returned with uh, a, a brain injury. He had been uh, got some shrapnel, went under his goggle, and sort of did a loop-de-loop in his frontal lobe, and he came back blind, and with just... Sort of a, the, a kind of brain injury where you didn't know what, that he was brain injured. Right. And when you met him, you, you knew he was blind, obviously. Uh, and it ranges from that to guys that you can that I visited that don't know you're in the room. Right. And uh, it's uh, it, it's a it's a huge huge problem. And we, here are the only you know the real people who've been asked to sacrifice in this war on terror are are our men and women in the military and their families. Because right. the families, when the families come back, uh, uh, when when their their uh, uh, brother or sister or son or daughter come back with a brain injury, they're the ones that are are, are dealing with that. Yeah, there's a tremendous toll on the families. Just you know, the amount of time they have to take off of work and the travel and, and taking care of the kids and all the other things you're trying to balance, uh, in addition to taking care of your husband or wife who, who's been wounded. Uh, and traumatic brain injury is, is an important issue because not everyone is visible. You can't always tell that someone's had that type of injury. It's kind of like a super concussion. So over time, uh, you may experience blindness or, or learning problems. You may not even know you have a brain injury. So one of the things we're calling for in our, in our legislative agenda is an expansion to the benefits, delivery, and discharge program. Uh, we need a complete medical examination within 90 days, and we have to screen specifically for these types of undiagnosed blast injuries. Uh, and we need follow-up treatment and follow-up screening throughout uh, veterans at least near term when they come home over the course of a few years because these things sometimes take, take a long time to, to reveal themselves. Uh, and in Iraq alone, we've got about 23,900 people who've been wounded, more than half of them severely. So we're talking about a serious number of people that's only going to increase with this surge and, and the continued deployment of people in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Uh, the, yeah, and the name of that movie was Homefront. Yep. And uh, really, I, uh, I think it was on Showtime, too, and, and uh, just an incredibly moving piece because the family was absolutely amazing. And, and another issue that when uh, troops come back, especially reservists and, and uh, also uh, the guard, guys who aren't active duty, uh, they're returning home sometimes to uh, they've lost a job because they've been away so long, right? Right. And uh, so when they come back, they don't have their health insurance runs out because they're in the guard. And suddenly, and they've lost a job because they're in the guard. 
and they come back and they have no health insurance and, and are, are, are there recommendations you have for that? Yeah, well, one of the things we really want to focus on uh, is, is, is an expansion of the time window where you can go to the VA. Basically, you're supposed to go to the VA within two years of coming home if you've got a problem. After that, it's, it's a much different process and it's a lot more difficult. So, you know, this should be, we're calling for at least five years. We think that's a, an obtainable spot. Uh, it should, in my opinion, personally be lifetime, but we're going to start with five years and then probably work from there. Uh, but the employment issue is another thing that's a real problem. Right now, uh, returning veterans have three times the unemployment rate of the national average. Uh, so we need a real GAO study to find out why these people are unemployed. That's amazing. And how can we craft some solutions? And we also need employer tax credits for people who have guardsmen or reservists who are called to active duty. You've got to make it a little easier for the employers as well so they can absorb some of those costs. Because uh, right now, they're really if you've got a small business and you lose one-fourth of your workforce, the government's not doing anything to compensate you for losing that person. Uh, so if we're going to be a country at war, we've got to get the whole country involved, because I think you're right, Al. Right now, you know, we're not a country at war. We're a military, and, and the military families are at war, and everybody else is watching American Idol and shopping for the most part. And, 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 and that must be really disconcerting. That must be very odd for, for uh, men and women coming back, to come back to a country that doesn't feel like it's at war. It's tough, but I think, to be honest with you, we've seen a groundswell, and we've seen more people getting involved and more people reaching out to our group. And, and you know, groups like ours are trying to give people tangible things to do. That's why, you know, we encourage people that are listening today, go to our website, go to IAVA.org. You can sign a petition for Secretary Nicholson. You can take legislative action. You can organize in your community. And there are a lot of tangible ways for people to get involved and really do something. And, and you know, veterans are out in front. We're leading the way. We just need people to stand behind us, you know, in the community. Friday, the Secretary of the U.S. Army resigned. It was the latest shoe to drop in the wake of the Washington Post's expose two weeks ago about the breakdown in outpatient care at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. The article depicted an overloaded system where soldiers with serious injuries must fend for themselves in a nightmarish bureaucracy with substandard facilities. The Post may have made the biggest splash, but in recent weeks, the plight of the wounded also sparked major pieces in Newsweek, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and NPR, among others. This week, ABC's Bob Woodruff hosted a special on vets with traumatic brain injuries, the signature injury of the roadside bomb, the injury he sustained last year. It's clear why ABC latched onto that story, but why the sudden interest across the media? We put the question to a reporter who's been covering the stories of wounded Iraq war vets probably longer than anybody else. That's Mark Benjamin of the online magazine Salon. He suggests that editors may be more willing to go after these stories 
partly because the public is more receptive to bleak news about the war. To give you an example, I wrote my first story about this issue in the fall of 2003. Um, it was about Fort Stewart, Georgia, and the headline was something like sick and injured soldiers held in squalor and they couldn't get doctor's appointments. and They weren't being fairly compensated. At that time, I received hundreds of really vicious emails, you know, where I was called a communist and a traitor and I was a liar and so on and so forth. This is something that Congress held hearings about and, and, and the army publicly said, yes, we've got a problem and we're going to fix it. My guess is that's not the reaction that the Washington Post is getting from its Sears and Walter Reed, and it's not the reaction that I get from doing the same kind of stories now. Now, there is another reason that we may not have seen, you know, tons of coverage on this subject until now, and that is that the Pentagon has really done its best to manage or even divert what coverage there has been of the wounded. Can you describe what happens if, you know, I, as a reporter, decide to pursue this story and, you know, and call public affairs at the Pentagon and say, I'm interested in outpatient care at Walter Reed or any other military facility? What happens next? What happens is that reporter is escorted onto the facility. They are brought up to Ward 57, which is the ward where they have amputees which is an amazing place and does an excellent job. Those reporters are introduced to pre-screened and pre-selected soldiers, um, and the reporters are given a very limited, very happy news story, which may be true for a small number of soldiers or, or even maybe a significant number of amputees, but ends up giving the public a very skewed perception of what is happening to the lion's share of people coming back from this war. The military medical system cannot seem to get its arms around wounds that you can't see. In other words, you know, if you're missing a leg, they're going to take care of you. If you have traumatic brain injury, particularly a closed head traumatic brain injury, you can't see anything there. Or you have post-traumatic stress disorder, you're extremely disturbed, you're suicidal, you're homicidal, but there's no physical thing that the medical establishment can look at. For some reason, those people, as far as I can tell, get the worst of the lot and are really languishing. And that's a big story that's been overlooked. Now, I noticed that in the wake of the Post's coverage that the military's response has been, among other things, to clamp down on the patients in the notorious Building 18 at Walter Reed where the mold was on the walls and rat droppings were everywhere and so forth. The soldiers, uh, according to a report in the newspaper, the Army Times, have to be ready for inspection at 7 o'clock in the morning. Everything's spick and span, and they're forbidden to speak to the media. I don't know whether that's true, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit. When I first wrote my story back in 2003 at Fort Stewart, Georgia, a very similar thing happened. The day after I wrote that the you know troops were being held in squalor and not given proper medical care, the entire, you know, the battalion is stood up in the middle of a field and told to shut up, essentially, and threatened. And further, in terms of managing the story, I noticed that Big Brass stood up and said, yes, it's, you know, deplorable. There are mice droppings and mold on the walls. Focusing on the aspects of this story that are easily cleaned up, but focusing away from the underlying bureaucracy, the neglect, and maybe even worse, an actual financial conflict of interest uh, on the part of the Pentagon. Can you tell me about it? What is happening in this story is that the Army is doing two things simultaneously, and they're working at cross-purposes. On the one hand, the Army is trying to give these people outpatient therapy, whether that's somebody with, you know, trying to learn to use their prosthetic leg or somebody getting treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, in other words, from a counselor. At the same time, the Army is trying to decide how much the military is going to pay those soldiers in benefits for the rest of their lives. So you've essentially got a conflict of interest in the Army. They can either 
pay these guys benefits for the next 50 years. And if they do that, they're going to take money away from more bullets and bombs. In the wake of the Walter Reed scandal, do you think that overall the press's attention is still being diverted to deplorable physical conditions and still not focused on the underlying structural problems? I think that reporters have figured out that mice and mold in a building off, you know, the campus of Walter Reed, while very disturbing, is not really what the story is about. What I think reporters are going to start figuring out, or what I hope they're going to start figuring out, is that this is very widespread. It's not just at Walter Reed. It's at Fort Stewart. It's at Fort Carson. It's at Fort Benning. And it's a systemic breakdown. And I think that reporters will start to figure that out. To a certain extent, though, I think there are a lot of reporters that are just sort of trying to figure out exactly what they're dealing with. Okay, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mark Benjamin is a national correspondent for Salon.com. You can link to his ongoing coverage of the war wounded at onthemedia.org. Troops injured in Afghanistan or Iraq go to a variety of places for medical care, depending on how badly they're wounded and whether they're still active or discharged. Walter Reed Army Medical Center treats active duty military and is part of the Department of Defense. The Veterans Affairs Department runs the VA health system, which is for discharged veterans. Here to help understand the maze of the two systems is Bobby Muller. He's the president of Veterans for America, and he was injured in Vietnam as a Marine. He joins us from his office here in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. And let's consider the case of a, of a soldier who, say, is wounded in Iraq. If that's a serious enough injury that he or she is sent home, where would that soldier go first? Depends on the branch of service, because you've got naval facilities like Bethesda, you have army facilities like Walter Reed, but you're going to come back to a military hospital. A lot of folks in this country have been confused. Walter Reed is a military hospital. The people there are soldiers and, to some extent, some retirees. And the veterans' hospitals are when you're separated from the service and you become a veteran. And it's a 164 hospital system nationwide. It's got millions of patients, and it's a different population. What we're finding today is that the returning people from these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are getting good, acute medical care for traumatic brain injury, amputations, etc., but then are languishing at these facilities until they go through the adjudication process of getting a disability rating from the Physical Evaluation Review Board that determines whether or not they go back to active duty or they separate from the service and become veterans. And that would be one question of when they would move from one system, the Department of Defense system, into the veteran system. Well, that's the problem that is dependent on a decision about how serious the illness or the disability is. What we're finding is that a lot of people coming back with obvious 
disabilities that will render them useless for active military service are still taking many months to simply get separated because of the backlog at Walter Reed, for example. One of our guys here took a bullet through the head in Iraq. And even though he had a plate in his head and there was no doubt that he was going to leave active military service, it took him eight months to simply process the paperwork to get out. Does the system work differently if someone is in the, the reserves or the National Guard? No. They come back, they have to deal with the same process. There are people that have been activated on military duty that wind up getting sick or wounded and have to go through the same mechanism facilities as regular active military duty service members. And are the benefits the same? Yeah. When I spoke yesterday with the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, James Nicholson, he told me that they were going to be adding more patient advocates to help steer people through this system and also would would attack the backlog of cases. Uh, Do you think that's realistic, and, and will that help the problem? It will definitely help the problem. It's, you know, critically necessary. It is backed up to the point where case officers only get to meet the soldier the day of, or in some cases the day before, the appearance before the review boards. It is routine for us to find people waiting upwards of a year to get processed out. And that's just nuts. Is the backlog, do you think, a factor of the sheer numbers of soldiers who are coming back who've been wounded, or is it more cumbersome paperwork and not enough people at this end to process things? It should be no surprise that we sent troops into this war without equipment, protection, numbers, and the supports that they needed. So if if we did the bums rush in putting them into the war, there's been no planning on the back end here with both the Veterans Administration as well as DOD to deal with the casualties. You've got a crushing load that has come in on the existing structures that have not been ramped up to deal with casualties of war. We've had well over 50,000 that have been medically evacuated out of Iraq, and it's breaking the system. Bobby Muller is president of Veterans for America. Mr. Muller, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. So now we have time, I guess, for your precious health care story. Bleeding heart liberal. Oh, health care, health care. Everybody needs a doctor. <laughs> Get a job with a company that pays for it, and uh, that's how you do it. Not you go to a, some sort of free clinic. Jesus. Well, this story is not just about health care. It's a gigantic repudiation of uh, conservative ideology. So you say. Uh, first of all, uh, when asked, only 24% of Americans were satisfied with President Bush's handling of health insurance. This is a New York Times CBS poll, really echoing numbers almost identical to the ABC News Washington Post poll earlier in the week. And 62% said the Democrats were more likely to improve health care system. That's not surprising. 24% is a terrible number for Bush, but he hasn't done anything. So, of course, it's only right. 24%. So, now, let's we get to the real numbers here. Uh, eight, 
let me start with this one. 64% said the government should guarantee health insurance for everyone. Only 21, oh, I'm sorry, 27% said no. 64% said the government should guarantee health insurance for everyone. Yet Hillary Clinton, uh, for her proposal in 94, and John Edwards now, are continually vilified in the right wing as being nutty, out-of-touch, socializing health care advocates. Exactly. And now, even bigger numbers. 84% of those polled said they supported expanding the current program to cover all uninsured children, now estimated at more than 8 million. Uh, 84%. 84% of Americans are socialists. (laughs) The poll found Americans across party lines willing to make significant sacrifices to ensure that every American has access to health insurance, quoting the New York Times here. Uh, They said 60%, including 62% of independents, and even 46% of Republicans said they would be willing to pay more taxes, uh, up to $500 more in taxes for this. Eight in ten, 80 percent said they thought it was more important to provide universal access to health insurance than to extend tax cuts of recent years. What we have been hearing from the conservatives all along is uh, tax cuts, private industry, people don't want this, the government to handle this, they don't want universal health insurance. Well, the conservatives are dead wrong. But- Eighty percent is an overwhelming number because saying not only do we want this, we want the government to handle it and we're willing to pay more taxes for it. That's huge. Everybody who has money has dealt with a private insurance company and they know it's nonsense and they know that this is something that is very reasonable that the government would offer. So the idea that the conservatives are trying to push that, no, we should privatize everything and the Democrats are wrong on all these issues. The market will take care. And that they're not mainstream couldn't be more wrong. The mainstream says we need to take care of health insurance. The government needs to do it. And we're even willing to pay more taxes. Who's not mainstream is Bill Crystal and Sean Hammond. Senator Edward Kennedy, my uncle Teddy, who's about to become chairman of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Teddy, for many years the Republicans have been charging you with being in favor of socialized medicine. We need a health care change in this country. Is it socialized medicine? Well, um, first of all, everybody that has health care at the present time is paying probably a third more than they should be in order to underwrite people who are not covered. Those are the uh, the facts. We are paying for health care for everyone at this time, but it isn't uh, organized or rationalized in a sensible and responsible way. And as a result, people go to the emergency, emergency rooms, rooms when they're sicker. It costs them five or six times more than if we had a, a, system, uh, that a system that, one, stressed preventive health care, uh, that would be enormously important, had uh, best practices, had case management, and uh, used information uh, technology 
Uh, we could save people enormous amounts of resources if we were able to do uh, the comprehensive. And it's about time that we moved uh, in that uh, direction. I think it's uh, we're the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't have it. And this has enormous implications in our ability to trade. Uh, we have to be able to compete internationally, and our companies are bearing the uh, this very heavy uh, burden, and it's enormously costly, and it and effectively costs us out of the world markets in many different kinds of products. I've heard that for every automobile that General Motors produces, about $2,500 of the cost goes to employee health care plan. That's a huge competitive disadvantage. That's exactly. That's exactly. Industry. It's exactly right. Five years ago, we were spending a, a trillion four hundred billion dollars on health care. This year, we'll spend a two trillion dollars. That's six hundred billion dollars more. And during this period of time, six million Americans have lost their health insurance. So the all the indicators are going the wrong way. Tony, let me ask you one final thing that I've been asking all of the Senate and congressional leaders that we've been having on this show, which is that, and I know it's been worrying you a lot about what has happened to the Bill of Rights during the last six years of this administration, that the administration has been able to get away with disposing of ancient guarantees like habeas corpus, that we are now Americans, Americans are now engaging in torturing people, that we are wiretapping our citizens illegally, that we are imprisoning people without trial. All of these things that were bedrock American values have been disposed of. And it's not just that the administration has done these things, but that they've been able to do it without much protest from the American press and even the American people. Do you think, I mean, the idea of impeaching the president for these kind of crimes, just as a civic lesson, to the American public to say, to remind people that this is not what America stands for and that no president in history should ever be able to get away with throwing away the bedrock constitutional guarantees. Tell me what your reaction to that is. Well, of course, uh, I, I'm not uh, for the impeachment now. I'm not sure we want uh, Dick Cheney uh, in there. But beyond, <laughs> beyond this, Let's look at the uh, at the history of when this country was under a great deal of pressure last, and that was during the Vietnam War. Here we had a president that effectively, Lyndon Johnson, retired or quit from office because of the uh, of that. We had uh, cities that were in flames. We lost uh, political leaders at that time, but we never, with all of the kind of pressure that was on the United States, United States government, the United States institutions, we never retreated from our institutions and that was a very very powerful lesson that uh, at the time when we were having the greatest kinds of divisions and discussions debates and differences in the united states there wasn't an attempt to reduce those kind of protected rights which are the bedrock of what our society is about that is very very instructive and we were able to get through that period and come out of that as a strong nation and, and that ought to be the, the, the same is true at this at this time uh, here. We never had to to do the kinds of limitations in terms of the, the constitutional rights and liberties that we've been uh, facing, and I think we'll hopefully be able to recapture the, a number of those with a new Congress. But quite frankly, I think we need a new presidency. There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. 
leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. The world's biggest retailer, American giant Walmart, may have to pay billions of dollars in compensation following a legal ruling in the United States. A federal appeals court has decided that a claim that Walmart discriminated against its female workers should be treated as a class action. An estimated one and a half million women workers claim they were paid less than male employees and were denied promotion. Chris Kwapnowski has worked for Walmart for more than 20 years. I didn't get my first promotion till the day after the class action was certified. I had been asking for years, general managers, assistant managers, even some of our regional people who had come in. I'd ask, you know, what I needed to do to get promoted because there were male counterparts that I was personally training to take positions that I wanted and I was being passed over right and left. Well, Jocelyn Larkin is the lawyer for some of the women involved. She's been fighting the case since 2001. What we have seen is that consistently in every store, in every state, the women, despite the fact that they were performing on average better than men, were being paid less and being denied opportunities for promotion into the management jobs, which is really where one can make some money at Walmart. The hourly jobs are rather low-paying, but at every level, women were getting the short end of the stick in terms of the benefits of the hard work they were putting in. The case was filed in 2001, and we now have the go-ahead to go to trial, but it's been a long time coming. That's the view from the lawyer. Here's a statement from Walmart. It says the class action is based on a technical legal issue and doesn't address the merits of the plaintiff's case, adding Walmart would appeal. Our correspondent in Washington, James Westhead, has more. I think there's a, there's a lot of anxiety at Walmart because of the potential scale of this lawsuit that makes it probably the largest ever in the history of the United States, if not the world, in terms of sex discrimination cases. Uh, it, that depends, of course, on a large number of the of up to 1.6 million women who worked for Walmart over the years, going back to 1998, actually joining into this case, which uh, uh, tracks back to uh, a, a lady in her. 50s called Betty Dukes, who still works in a, as a greeter at a Walmart in San Francisco, who, when she heard the news of this uh, class action ruling, said that she was absolutely overjoyed and leapt at, let out a, a cheer. Um, but it depends really on women joining it, but also on the plaintiffs being able to prove that these weren't simply individual cases, but there was a sy- systemic uh, problem in Walmart, that they were systematically discriminated against women, and that will be uh, a tough thing to prove. And the American legal system is notoriously lengthy, and uh, I suppose on the basis of other class actions that have been before, often the subject of appeals. This could be a very long road, couldn't it? This will be a long road uh, because Walmart have said, they, in their words, that this is just a small step. Uh, they are planning to appeal uh, to a higher level of the uh, appeals court in San Francisco. More judges will consider this. And even if they lose that, they will go to the Californian Supreme Court and even further to the U.S. Supreme Court. They are adamant that they will appeal this uh, as, as much as it takes to overturn it. Of course, if they lose, uh, the stakes are very high. 
why, if 1.6 million women stand to benefit, you're looking at several thousand dollars each, even if uh, just in back pay, uh, you're talking about billions of dollars overall. Right now, Keith Lockich is with us. Keith, am I pronouncing that right? Lockich. Lockich, thank you. With the Ayn Rand Institute, A-Y-N-R-A-N-D dot O-R-G. And I, I think it's always useful for us to listen particularly carefully to you guys over at Ayn Rand because uh, the objectivist thinking, the, the objectivist uh, uh, philosophy that Ayn Rand uh, largely developed and wrote about probably first in her book, uh, Atlas Shrugged, has become so much of the foundational thinking for the libertarians and for the Grover Norquist variety of conservatives, although I realize you guys uh, uh, disavow them. And uh, this this piece, that uh, this Ayn Rand press release, No Child Led Ahead, uh, just you know lays this right out. You've, you've got a problem with No Child Left Behind, and it's not that the program's not doing good enough. It's that we have public education at all. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> So I mean, I think, yeah, I, I, I think No Child Left Behind is just one more attempt to reform, you know, a system of public education that's been dismal for decades. It's been reform after reform has completely failed, and I think what we need to look at, it, we need to look more deeply at why that's happened. I think the problem is inherent in having a very system of public education itself. What we should be moving toward is a system of totally free market. Uh, private education. So do away with public schools altogether. Right. I mean, look, in any other industry, we recognize that, um, you know, letting the government run things is a catastrophe. Um, you know, one of the main reasons communism fell is that the state was in charge of the economy. So well, why, I, I, why are we entrusting the minds I, of our children? Keith, to Keith I would agree with you that letting the government run the manufacture of shoes and steel and things like that is a catastrophe. But are you saying that the United States Army from the inception of this country has been a catastrophe, that our police departments are catastrophes, that well, our no, fire departments certain, are catastrophes? No, there are certain functions that the government has to perform. Um, and they know, perform it quite well, thank you very much. Well, they 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 have they, they perform that those functions quite well because those are proper functions of government. The government is the institution in society that plays the role of the of the peacekeeper, the police, the military. Those are the those are the functions the government has in society. It's, I mean, and it's basically protecting people from, you know, other people violating their rights. Well, this is what the government should. What the government shouldn't be doing is trying to run any kind of productive industry, producing goods or services, you know, that for people to consume. But what does education have to do with productive industry? We're talking about getting people the basic stuff that you need to to be functional in society. I've I've worked and lived in countries, not lived very long, but I've worked in countries where there are not 
good public education systems where where large percentages in in, in parts of countries where large percentages of the kids uh, in rural India, for example, you know, ninety ninety five percent of the kids are completely illiterate. I mean, totally right on through. And and, well, and it's not same- a good thing. I mean, you know, see, yes, they have privatized school systems. The rich educate their kids, the poor don't. But it doesn't work well for society. Well, that's not true. I mean, it. it, it there are poor I've been there, areas I've seen it. In, there are poor areas in Nigeria where uh, 70 over 70% of parents choose to send their kids to private schools rather than the free ones they pay $2 a month and they do it because they're better I mean, one woman says if you go to a market and you're offered free fruit and vegetables they'll be rotten if you want fresh fruit and vegetables you have to pay for them and that's I mean that's the basic issue if you want if you want quality services and education is a service you know, you need a you need to pay for it, and you need a system that has real accountability. You need a system where um, administrators have customers, students who who if they don't serve them properly, you know, they lose business, they lose profit. What we have is a system now uh, where there is no real accountability. You know, every couple of oh, years, certainly there is. There are school boards, there are PTAs. Yeah, exactly. Every few it's... every few years, you can get voted off the school board, but that's not real accountability. Real accountability is when the, your bottom line suffers if you're not producing a proper quality. Only if you're a for-profit uh, institution. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of capitalism in a regulated you know, form and, 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 and for companies making a profit, but we're talking about the core stuff here. I mean, Thomas Jefferson founded the University of Virginia as a free, publicly funded institution yeah, but I think solely to provide social mobility in society. What you're arguing for, uh, Keith, is a system which is going to rigidly enforce orders in classes, which I, you know, I realize is John Locke's definition of you know, what a conservative is really all about, but I, I, I just don't think that most Americans believe that that's what we want to have, where well, only the think, wealthy... But can, do you think the public education system that we have today is doing anything to alleviate, you know, to provide a quality education to low-income Students. I think I our, think our public think education system has been under assault for 26 years ever since Reagan came into office and started and started trying to deconstruct it. Yes, I think that our, our public yeah, education system, system was failing lost. long before Reagan came into power. We we have one of the highest literacy rates in the world, Keith. We had the average citizen in America is 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 quite functional and quite literate. Yes, I realize we have well, the, you know, the, the literacy rate in America today is, is approximately 65 percent. And 200 years ago, it was in the 90% when we had a system of basically fully private. The problem with those statistics is that they include a lot of people who have come into this country illegally and are not conversant in English. You've got, if you've got 20 million people in this country who don't have English as, as, who aren't even largely functional in English, and you include them in your survey of who's literate and who's not, yes, you're going to have very high illiteracy standards. But, and, and, uh, and also there's the question of how do you define literacy. But, but broadly speaking, in the United States, the vast majority of people, I mean, how many people have you met recently who don't know how to read? Well, hang on a minute. We're, I, I think we're getting away from the, from the basic issue here. All of the, My point all, is all the, the schools arguments. are working. They're, they no, need some help. I mean, they okay, need a lot of help, frankly, but they're, but they're working. All the arguments that you're making are based on the idea that society has some sort of duty or, or you know, stake in educating uh, Students. Yes, absolutely. I think I, I disagree with the idea that there's any sort of right to education. You know, parents have a responsibility it goes beyond to a provide right. their children with an education. It goes beyond a right, Keith. It, it, it gets to the core. I mean, and, and again, this is it's, it's brilliant that we're having this conversation because it, it's the perfect cleavage of the conservative worldview and the liberal worldview. My argument is not that we should all have a right to an education, but that we collectively got together when this country was created. 
we collectively got together and said, you know, to have the kind of society that we want to have, we're going to do things like subsidize newsprint and subsidize the, the, the mailing of newspapers, which we've done from the, literally from the signing of the, of the Constitution yeah, but to that this is, day. But that is not what defines the founding of the country. The founding of this country was, is defined by the protection of, of individual rights, meaning you know, rights, freedom part, from interference. In by part, the, the founding of this country was also founded on the idea of community, that we're all in this together, that we're looking out for each other. You know, Ben Franklin started the first fire department, the first public libraries. Well, These were I things mean, people got together. Maybe that was the founding of Cuba, but that was not the founding of America. What, Ben, ben Franklin starting a public library is the founding of Cuba? Look, the Declaration of Independence is based on... on uh, you know the reason governments are instituted. The Declaration of Independence is not a legal document. Happiness. I don't. I don't. I don't see anything about the fire department in the de- in the Declaration of Independence. Well, the Declaration of Independence is not a legal document, but that governs this country. The Constitution is, and the and the in the, in the preamble to the Constitution, there are six items that are explicitly listed as the goal of government in this country, and one of them is to promote the general welfare. And if promoting the general yeah, welfare but the founding means having an educated of promoting populace, the general welfare is not. If Thomas, and, if Thomas Jefferson was here today and looked at our public school system, he probably would burn the University of Virginia to the ground in protest. No, he I mean, would say fund it better, like like I did the University of Virginia. Give it enough money that you can hire the very best professors, give them the very yeah, best the books and schools. U.S. expenditure per student is the highest in the world, and yet our school system is still failing. Forty percent of fourth graders still can't read properly, and yet we're spending more money on students than any other country in the world. So why? How how is more money going to solve the problem? The problem is not. I have never where suggested, the money Keith, that the problem. Problem is money. In fact, I would suggest to you, I agree with your criticism of No Child Left Behind. I think it's terrible. I think I think our education system needs a lot of overhaul. And I've written extensive. I've written two books about this. But but I disagree with the with your position that we should simply do away with public education because it's not optimal right now in the United States. Well, I disagree with your disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's a reasonable place to leave it. I guess it's it's. Uh, but you know, it's this. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I guess that's really ultimately what it gets right down to. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's it's it's. Do you think children have a right to education or not? Yeah. I think parents have a moral responsibility to provide their children with an education. I don't. They don't have a responsibility to provide other people's children with an education. And if we had a system where people were responsible for their own children, they weren't taxed to the hilt to pay for other people's children. You'd have a system where where you could have private schools developing with real accountability and real quality growing driven by the free market for the rich for everybody well see that's you know i it just it, it doesn't work that way but. well it does work that way do poor okay. people you know are, i mean are, are there thousands of people who can't afford shoes we have a, should we so should we collectivize and nationalize the shoe industry no so no we shouldn't we shouldn't and i'll agree with you on that part to believe for all the world that you're my precious little girl but don't 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 let's start i've got a week They're doing uh, 
license plates for sex offenders, and they're going to glow, and they're going to be green. Okay? I'm not kidding. Not kidding. Not kidding. Okay? Okay, dude, I got it. I know. I know. It's oh, Look, first of all, you shouldn't let them out. Okay, that's my real point. Okay, but now that you've let them out, you can't give them a glowing green license plate. You can't do it. It's too, And what if somebody else is driving the car? I mean, imagine you got to borrow the car to go for it. You know, to go get some milk and cereal or something. And then everybody's like, ah, oh, glowing green license plate. And then you'll be like, I regret it. I'm sorry. Man, I'm sorry. That was just my mistake in my bed. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's wrong in 88 different ways. We, I don't th- I'm not comfortable living in a society where we mark people. Well, and by the way, this is, this is not the only thing. They're looking to mark other people. They're like, okay, that's to mark those guys, and then other kind of criminals, they want to give them other kind of license plates. Oh, see, it makes sense to me if you do it to everybody, but I've always wondered why they only do it to the sex offenders. Oh, because that's what everybody flips that's out about. That's what everybody's kind afraid of. of, protect the kids. Um, I, 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 I think that marking other criminals makes... if anything, makes... I would think a glowing license plate would attract kids. <laughs> would attract kids? Yeah. Uh. A little glowing license plate. I will make every sex offender drive an ice cream truck. <laughs> I mean, that's not funny. That is not a... In fact... Sorry, Greg. I'm sorry. Man, I'm sorry. That was just my mistake in my bed. That way, you'll know if you see an ice cream truck, that's a sex offender. <laughs> Kids, stay away. All right. Uh, uh, I, I, this, the, the marking people... Sorry, go, they're marking other people. Yeah, the U.S. Several U.S. states are requiring convicted drunken drivers to use a yellow, pink, or red plate on their cars. Look, if you still have to mark them, then don't let them out. Um, then sentence them to longer stays in prison. Uh, uh, but basically, I don't think you can not let them out. At some point, people serve their time. That's what we have. Certainly harsh sentencing now in this country has arrived, and, and, uh, and people are not getting out after two years of an eight-year sentence that are for violent crimes. Almost every state has this at least mandatory 80% of the sentence. You can't work off much in good behavior. So, you know, if you get an eight-year sentence for, for, for a, a sexual misconduct or, or, or a sexual assault, you probably served eight years. Uh, and you can't Frickin' mark people, or you can't put them, make them register, and you can't have people know where their house is. It's all hideously wrong. I'm just thinking, like, I'm in Ohio, and I'm like, oh my god, he's got a pink license plate. Which one was that? Which one was pink was license plate? The sex offender or the drunk driver? Oh, was... he's gay. Oh my, oh, wait a minute. No, he's a war criminal. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. I mean, like, seriously, if you have a pink, a red, a yellow, and a green license plate, who's going to keep track of which one it is? Yeah, here's, the, here's what we should do to sex offenders. Forget the license plate. Uh, well, first of all, let's start with, uh, because I, I think you, if you're going to do it, you have to do it to all criminals. So, yeah. so people who steal, burglars, shoplifters, and so forth, we'll take a page from Saudi Arabia. Let's cut off their hand. And then when they come into a place, you'll see a guy without a hand, and you know that either he's an Iraqi war veteran getting improper medical care, or he's a shoplifter, one of the two. And And we're both. So so either he's a hero, or you want to throw him out of the store. Right, and and if he's a shoplifter, watch for the other hand, because you don't know where it's going. Right, and then then if he's a... a, uh, And by the way, there are people in the country who actually, of course, believe this. Uh, And if he's he's committed some sort of sexual misconduct, uh, cut off his penis. And you will see blood on his crotch, and you will be able to identify him as a sex offender. Well, there's the red part. Yeah. Right. There you go. Look, I don't know. If, is it just me that marking people makes no, no. me uncomfortable? I don't like the sexual offender registry. It's see, wrong. The sentence is over. We sent them to prison. When they're out of prison, I'm sorry, they might commit another crime. You're right. That's the way it is. There's something, though, I like about 
the fact that you can see where sex offenders live. I, I do. Because it's funny. Because It is funny. <laughs> that's, that's not the funny Jill. part. I regret it. I'm sorry. Dan, I'm sorry. I remember, I don't know why, uh, a couple years ago, Dario and I stayed up until like 4 a.m. looking in various cities of where sex offenders lived. And it was really fascinating. They all lived near schools. Now, if I'm a parent and I'm moving into a new neighborhood, I sort of would like to know that if, uh, if I'm moving into a sexual predator-infested area, I don't want to move there. Uh, uh, look, first of all, there's no way you're right. Yeah, okay. there's no way that's true. I bet you that there's schools near everything. Like if you yeah, did, yeah, elementary school, like every forty feet. Right. If you did a random thing of like you know where we all live, right? You're like, oh, and they all can be live pretty close to a school. They all live near. It's like saying they all live near a Seven Eleven. No, but it, I, go. I forget what the website is. It's like Jessica's Law or something. I forget where it was. Getem.com. But no, we really. They're all like next to schools. Next to schools, because I I looked in my own neighborhood. But some of them are not child sex offenders. Most of them are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know she's lying when she's whispering. <laughs> um, no, because you can you can. Click. You know, all of them were no, no, no. right next to streets where they could drive to go get children. No, no, because no, you can you can click on the person at the house and you can find out who it is and see their picture and the crime. I loved it. But they've already served their sentence. Don't we don't. We, no. I well, I care. It's because it's an it's an incurable problem. I, but the, first of all, the range of crimes is different. I mean, it's not. I mean, they're not. No, it's not an incurable problem. It is too. They found. I mean, like I, I think they've realized that there's <laughs> no rehabilitation for sex offenders. I love the beginning of that when you knew what she was going to say something unsubstantiated. I think uh, they found that <laughs> right. Yeah. right. What study was that? Right. Look, now, I, but look, overall, right, I get I, what I, you're I, saying. I, yes, I think it, you're largely right. It, the recidivism rate among uh, child uh, pr- predators uh, and uh, sex Listen, offenders they is, is much higher. It, no okay? question. They say. They say. <laughs> no, it is. It is much higher. And look, you're not somebody who's gay is gay. Somebody who's straight is straight. Somebody who's turned on by kids is probably going to continue to be turned on by kids. But that doesn't mean they're going to act on it. You know, there's a big difference with, you know. But at the same time, if we feel they're not fit for society, then we really shouldn't let them out. But but if we judge that they are, then you can't go around making them wear yellow armbands. And, you know, there was a process in uh, when we were working in Miami where some states were keeping people in prison longer, even at the end of their sentence. They wouldn't take them out of prison, but they'd move them to some sort of facility where they couldn't leave. Uh, yeah, but I, was, that was wrong. You but know it was, what we should do? We, it should was nicer all, than it. we should put all the sex offenders into, like, a camp. Yeah, yeah but, that's what I'm talking about. But that's, I mean, that's where we're headed. But that really is where we're headed. No, you can't put them in a camp. But we're headed there. I guarantee you there will be some No, I mean, look, sex offenders can live perfectly normal lives. I just want to know where they live so I don't have to go there. <laughs> yeah, live perfectly normal lives as long as we know who the fuck they are. No, they, they, <laughs> we'll let them out they, of our They sight. still have all the freedom of a normal citizen, but because they've done such an abhorrent crime... It, it's it's our right to know where they live. I don't. I think we are. I think this all contributes. Because I think I, we're more at risk from sexual predators than we are ever of a m- murderer or burglar. I don't think that's true. Which, oh, by the way, I guarantee from burglary, unquestionably, fifty billion times more common than than yeah, sexual assault. You're probably right. Um, 
you know, so we it's part of this paranoia that we have that we're all going to get it and our kids are going to get it. And it's the, uh, you know, and they're going to get attacked. And I know that every parent who's had a kid abused is obviously going to be outraged by this. But the fact is, and I don't know, and maybe the numbers are overwhelming, but we do more damage by sort of creating an environment where you can't trust anybody, where everybody's out to get you, and where every kid is going to get abused. It, uh, the fact is... Uh, People are going to abuse. Some people are going to abuse children. We obviously, no one in their right mind is going to say, we need to reduce the sentences for child sex offenders. They're in prison too long. Mm -hmm. No, no. Let's send them to prison for a very, very, very long time. But once they're out, they're out. Ben's Ben's the kind of guy who's liberal enough that when he has kids, he's going to put them in and send them to prison with the sex offenders. Be like, hey, listen, you just got to know all the different kinds of people. They're going to be rehabilitated, right? You're just going to be more trusting. Thanks for listening, everybody. As I hope you heard during the show, I am trying out a new experimental production technique. You may have heard of it. It's called advertising. Uh, Of course, on this show, they're all entirely self-indulgent, self-promotional advertisements. But it's something I really should have started a long time ago. You see, uh, in, in order for a podcast to grow, it needs to be promoted, but podcast producers are all poor and generally don't pay for advertising so the way a podcast gets promoted is by the involvement of the listeners which is what i'm asking for and what i should have been asking for all along but i've just done a terrible job of of asking so that's going to change now finally because in order for this show to uh, grow in popularity and uh, more importantly, sustainability, the, um, the population of the listenership needs to grow, but also the population of the community and the support for the show needs to grow as well. So that is what's going on. As, as, as a great orator once said when promoting a, a new project of his, quote, see, in my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in, to kind of catapult the propaganda, unquote. And so that's what I need to do. I just hate doing it. Um, You know, we get to the end of the show, and I don't like sounding like a broken record, so the the most important things, obviously, or um, very often would just not get said. And... uh, and so this is my new tactic, is to uh, guerrilla advertising, I guess. So if you hate it and you think it disrupts the show, then my apologies in advance, but at least uh, you all understand why it's important. So anyways, uh, th- those uh, three clips you heard are the things uh, that are important to the show, helping to promote the show, links to... Uh, leaving reviews in the iTunes Music Store, uh, digging the show at dig.com, and voting every month at Podcast Alley. Uh, Links to those are on the right-hand side of the website at bestoflefpodcast.com. Ways to communicate and interact with the show, all very important. 
sending emails, leaving messages on the comment line, and becoming a member of the community forum. All very uh, important and fantastic ways to communicate and become involved with the show. And more specifically, helping to produce the show is very important. This show is, in fact, produced by the community. Uh, the clips are provided by listeners, edited by listeners, sent in to me, and then often edited together by uh, listeners. Uh, sometimes by me, sometimes by listeners. So that's how the show gets put together, and you can be involved in that. Every Everyone out there uh, has the potential to help out in in one of many ways. So if you're interested at all in helping and helping the show be a sustainable entity, then you can get involved. I mean, basically, uh, the more people we have helping, the less work each individual has to do. And so we can all go on and lead normal lives, and this show will uh, remain available to help, you know, hopefully educate and entertain. All of this is happening, all of this new promotion is uh, not accidentally coinciding exactly with the moment that we get a brand new website, also, once again, built by a listener. Thank you very much to Billy from uh, Billy from Oregon, because uh, he, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't believe how much he does for the show, but in his spare time, he built a website. So... Uh, check out bestofleftpodcast.com. It, it has been down for a couple of days. It's back up. Uh, all the information is is there. It's very shiny, very glossy. Please take off your shoes when you come in. Uh, don't make too much of a mess um, because it is uh, pristine and beautiful. Uh, and finally, user-friendly. Uh, dirty little secret of mine is that I've hated my website ever since I uh, built it because it was built with uh, iWeb, which is a very amateurish uh, website builder, and I had no idea what I was doing. So I ended up with what I ended up with, and it has kind of done the job, but has not been a very pretty site. And, and so I'm very excited to have a new website. Check it out. It's very um, user friendly, as I said. So. If you've, if you've been to the website before, you'll be pleasantly surprised with the new layout, and you can actually find all the pertinent links to uh, anything you could possibly want to do, I guess. So that's it for today. From inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C., I'm Jay, and this is the Best of the Left podcast, coming from bestofleftpodcast.com. black and white apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor